Happy seventh day of Easter. This is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And happy Sunday following ascension. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension we see our own. Happy Memorial Day in remembrance of those who pay the ultimate price. But it's also a weekend that we find ourselves having to confront more trouble and more violence in our world. Even as we celebrate God's victory over sin and death and hell, we face the murdering of teenagers after a concert in Manchester, England, the gunning down of a busload of Egyptian Christians, many of them children, on pilgrimage to a desert monastery and we face the approach of the one-year mark of Orlando's own taste of traumatic violence, the murders of Christina Grimmie and the Pulse 49. What's up? What is up with that? But then we notice exactly where our lectionary takes us on this seventh Sunday of Easter. The tail end of the letter that Peter writes to his brothers and sisters in Asia Minor from Rome as he himself prepares to give his life for the sake of Christ along with many Christians who will be slaughtered by the nefarious Nero, lining the streets with human lamplights as he lights up Christians. And Peter says to them, and he says to us, in light of the risen Christ and his ascension to glory, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you as though something strange were happening to you. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to, de to devour. Suffering in the light of the cross. Suffering in light of the resurrection is part of the normal Christian life. And this weekend happens to be one in which we celebrate Memorial Day. The more reason to be appreciative of the sacrifices made by all those who serve to mitigate suffering and to protect the innocent. From first responders to medical personnel to all those who serve in the military, and especially those who have and will pay the ultimate price. 
This weekend's Wall Street Journal recalled Benjamin Rush. You'll recall he was the Continental Army's Surgeon General. Benjamin Rush says that his, said that his life's aim was to spend and be spent for the good of mankind. Echoing that theme that motivated so many of the founding generation. Just this past month, the son of a U.S. soldier killed in Afghanistan said, my father's life was not taken it was given for his country. Thank you to all of you who serve and to all of us who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. May we hear our risen, ascended master calling us to follow him. For as Peter says, strikingly, Ironically, rejoice, rejoice. How so? Well, he continues, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. The word that he uses for share is koinonia. It is fellowship. It is up close and personal face-to-face -face relationship. There is a certain sense in which we only know certain parts of who Jesus is in the crucible of sufferings. My friend Joel Hunter likes to say, Jesus didn't come just to get you into heaven, but to get himself into you. And then through you, to get a bit of heaven into the world. That's why Jesus said in our passage from Acts, you will be my witnesses. You will be the, where the world looks to see who I am and what I've done. And it so happens that the root word for witness in Greek is the word that we get martyr from. A witness points to the truth. And sometimes that truth costs them their life. But they can't not point to the truth. Notice the apostles' shields that surround our worship. And how many of them point to the way that that apostle died for our faith? Peter's upside-down cross. The knives that filleted Bartholomew. The X-shaped cross on which Andrew hung. Even Matthias, who was added after Judas abandoned, was cut open. And up in the choir loft on that side, Philip's cross. And on this side in the choir loft, the spear 
that is said to have taken Thomas's life. And over here, the saw that we're told was used to cut James the Less's body in half after he perished in Jerusalem. Well, there are big deaths and there are little deaths. And we're going to die them alone in despair or we're going to die them knowing Jesus at a deeper level. There are some conversations that you never, ever forget. And one was one that I had with a congregant in another church who had just put her husband through graduate school, raising beautiful kids, only to have him say, I just don't get this faith anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. I'm done with you. And I was visiting her along with a fellow elder at this church. And I don't even know how to, there's some things that are just intuitive to you. I don't even know how to explain it. I saw a peace in her that was beyond just stoic resignation. I saw in her an awareness that even as her husband was spurning her, her Savior had drawn nearer to her. As harsh as her husband's parting words to her had been, all the sweeter had become her Savior's whisper, I love you, and I have you. And I have to confess, looking at my life, which to that point was just roses, and which even now, compared to hers, has been roses. I looked into her eyes, and I felt envious of someone who was getting to know Jesus at a level that I wasn't sure I ever would myself. It has long been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. Never in the history of the church have we been in a position to witness that happen as much as now. From simply Christians just taking rejection in our society to the severe persecution of the faith that is going on around the earth. In the early 1980s, Christians in Sudan, it was demanded of them that they submit to Sharia law. And Christian bishops, chiefs, commanders, clergy, and the people of Sudan declared that they would not abandon God as God, as he had revealed himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then for some 20 years, there was civil war. During that time, two and a half million people were killed, half of whom were members of the church. 
Four million were internally displaced. A million scattered around Africa and beyond in what's been called the Sudanese diaspora. 22 of the 24 dioceses exist even now in exile in Uganda or Kenya. The majority of the clergy are unpaid. In 1983, only 5% of the population of Sudan were Christian. Now, over 85% of the 6 million who live in Sudan are mostly Episcopalian or Catholic. A faith rooted deeply in the mercy of God has renewed their spirits throughout the years of strife and sorrow. Japan. One of, our, one of our own sons, Barrick Smith, has gone back to Japan to serve in the country where he was raised by a mom and a dad who have been Christian servants there. Barrick goes back knowing full well how the gospel took such, took such hold in the middle of the 16th century that leaders became threatened and sought to eliminate Christianity and annihilate Christians so that the faith virtually was stamped out. And yet there is a remnant and there is no telling what will happen through the labors of our friend, people like our friend and our brother Barak, who is serving in a Christian middle school and high school, as well as in churches, serving in a middle school and a high school with one purpose in mind, to identify, to shape, to disciple, and to mentor a new generation of Christian leaders. Where does the joy come where does the sense of joy and freedom come from when you step into a world in which you know you may be taken out? Well, Jesus himself offers some grounds for confidence in the way he expresses himself in John 17 in his prayer. He prays to the Father about how eternal life is being given to all whom you, the Father, have given me. Jesus goes on to pray, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And I ask on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. These phrases stand alongside others in John. John 6, 37, everything the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. Or 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. They seem to be pointing to the notion that, well, 
didn't choose first? God's predestining, his electing love is a teaching that is surely mysterious to everybody who even tries to say those words. And certainly puzzling and even troubling to many. But it's firmly embraced in the 39 articles. Listen to what pastoral insight there is in Article 17 of our 39 articles. This teaching that God loved you first before it ever occurred to you to love him is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly people. It doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God. I'm here to testify. There's a certain poise and equanimity that comes when you know not only does he love you, which he does, but because he loves you, before you could ever love him, he took hold of you before you could even decide to take hold of him. And friends, part of what that means is that even when your grip loosens, his doesn't. When doubts about him creep into your mind, when doubts about yourself, when doubts about you creep into your own mind, no such doubts about you creep into his. When your heart threatens to cool towards him, his only warms the more toward you. Today, I invite you, as you come to this table, as you take the bread into your hands, as you drink the wine that is sweet and bitter at the same time, may you know that his love for you is as real as that bread, as tangible as that wine, because it comes to you in the body and the blood of Jesus, who gave himself for you and now reigns on high for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.